Today on The Black Goat, we talk about the role of situationism in psychology. What does the power of the situation mean, and how does situationism influence the work that psychologists do? And a letter about how you plan new research that builds on work that you have doubts about. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And we're in the unusual situation today of recording only with audio. We usually have a, a Skype connection. And what that means is that when Alexa is telling us about her brand new tattoo, she's not going <laughs> to be able to show it to us at the same time. So Samin and I are going to be in the same position as you listeners, although she gave us a preview earlier, which may or may not be going on our brand new Instagram account. Alexa, have you come to a decision on that? Do it. Do um, it. Do it. I'm, I'm 60% <laughs> in favor of doing it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sufficiently below the like center line of the butt cheek that I think that's okay, but <laughs> that's not where I thought you were going with that. Yeah, no. I'm glad there's no video, so you guys can't see that I just slammed my face um, into the microphone. <laughs> I heard so, it. Don't so, worry. so, um, Alexa, tell tell us about the tattoo. Yeah. So this. So I got this tattoo about a week ago. Um, and it's by far my biggest tattoo. So, I mean, maybe I shouldn't tell people details about it so they can wait for the for the image. Um, but the, the tattoos that I have so far are like very small, just like, um, you know, like regular black and white tattoos. Um, and it's just like line work. So the one that I have on my right wrist took probably like, I don't know, 20 minutes or something like that. So the the two that I have on my wrists are very small and were not painful. Um, and then this one is much bigger and is like in color and it was extremely painful. <laughs> and uh, so like I had the thought actually as I was getting this that I didn't have with the first two, like as she was sort of like halfway done and she was done the outline, I was like, wait a second, like my, my body is like never going to look the same that it did before, which kind of freaked me out. But I was talking about this with Samin and the, the sort of strange thought that I had that was comforting to me was that like, well, either my skin will look like it does now, or it would look like it did before, which is just like <laughs> skin colored. And I was like, well, this is kind of, like more, <laughs> this is like objectively more interesting and cool than when, when I was asking color. Alexa about advice about whether to chop my hair off or not, I was like, I'm going to miss my long hair. And she's like, yeah, I like my my rib skin too <laughs> <laughs> there's like a there, there's like a really like deep philosophical question in there which is like what's baseline right like yeah and this this comes up in a lot of like you see this in imaging experiments where people are like difference from baseline and then someone will be like no that's not baseline that's the default network or that's the like the effect of staring at a fixation cross like there's no uh -huh. there's no zero point right and it's it's sort of like in this philosophical way like why is like the skin that you were born with and skin. had two weeks ago, like your non-tattooed skin, why is that <laughs> like the default skin for Alexa? Like why yeah, is this right. not, they're just two valid alternatives for how your skin yeah. can be. I think my mom would have an answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't think about the counterfactual where you didn't get a tattoo. Think about the counterfactual where you got a swastika tattoo or something like that. It could be worse. Your skin could have <laughs> oh, bad stuff on it. Wow, this this just got really dark. <laughs> I'm gonna try that yeah, on my right, mom so. now. I, I wish I had known this before, and I would have told her that I got a swastika <laughs> tattoo, and then and then been like, wait, 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 no, it's just a. Well, now it. I'm not gonna reveal it because I want to like make it suspenseful. But it's not a. Swastika. But Samia, tell us about your new haircut that you're gonna oh, get. Yeah, I want to chop my hair off. I have an appointment tomorrow in actually in less than twelve hours because it's already nighttime here. Um. Yeah, well, maybe you have to wait for the picture, too. I, well, partly because I don't actually know. So, yeah. <laughs> But it will be short. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have really long hair right now, and I'm going to chop it all off. Yeah. Is there a chance that you're going to back out? Um, I mean, there's always some chance, but I think it's pretty small. I'm not, I'm not doubting it at this point. Uh -huh. And now this episode is going to come out, so I'll have to do it. Otherwise, it'll be embarrassing. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, do you think, I know this sounds like a dumb question, but do you feel like it's a bigger deal to chop off your hair or to get a tattoo? Because to me, it feels tattoo. like a bigger deal to chop off your hair. 
Yeah, I I think they're different. Like, obviously, tattoos more permanent. My yeah. hair will grow back. I think, especially, like, the kind of haircut yeah. I'm thinking about getting will be a pretty big deal in terms of, you know, how people, like, first impressions and even not first impressions. Like, I don't know if I'll be able to, like, like, I have no idea what people will think of me, even, like, people who I already know, people who, yeah, like, it's just going to be interesting i mean i've done it before i've done it twice i've had a quarter inch buzz twice but i was younger and i don't know maybe yeah i don't know why i'm like still nervous about it even though i've done it twice before mm-hmm. so is this samine is this going to be a haircut that it's just it's going to be noticeable for people that know you because it's different or is this going to be a haircut that someone who hasn't even met you before it's going to be like wow that's an unusual like a mohawk or a <laughs> something you know, in between like, is this going to be like that that so kind i'm of going unusual. for a little bit unusual like something, something in between what? so like okay. i don't want a okay. generic okay. women's short haircut i want something well like alexa and i were texting about it earlier like something like a, one <laughs> of the men's soccer players but that's still a pretty wide range of haircuts but yeah like I want an undercut and then I want it slightly longer on top and I want it to look a little unconventional and like the problem is it can't be too cool because it doesn't fit with my personality like if I had a cool haircut but nothing else about me was cool that would be super awkward (laughs) 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 but there's also a chance I'll get that and then I won't like it and then I'll just have a buzz cut so it'll like it could within you know within 12 hours it'll be short and hopefully a little unconventional and creative but within like 15 hours it could just be a quarter inch buzz so we'll see well i think we picked a perfect time to get a black goat podcast instagram yeah really all these changes that are going on um although i have no idea uh, how to post to it and i probably won't learn but i am enjoying controlling our twitter account while you guys are all sleeping during the entire daytime <laughs> well, so I mean, you definitely have to send a picture, and oh, I will happily okay, post I'll it to that. our Instagram account or, or Alexa can as well. And then we can post a picture of you dyeing all of your facial hair, Sanjay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> getting rid of the gray so I don't look so old. No, I, was I was thinking more like platinum blonde. Yeah. You have to do something, Edgy. Yeah, I. I know. I've, I feel left out. I'm not making any major changes to my appearance. Um, I did like I. I changed my my beard like the the guard on my beard trimmer from like a six to a four um because it's getting warm outside is that <laughs> can i yeah, right. can i join only if you post it on instagram sanjay okay I'm, do you have I'm a before post. pick and an after pick i'm sure i didn't like deliberately take a before pick but i'm i'm sure i have like you know pictures of me from before i reduced to the, the guard mm-hmm. length on <laughs> so I mean you lame. should take a before and after pick too I'm not uh, gonna I'm not gonna have a before pick really yeah yeah you don't have a before pick that's funny I don't think so yeah I'll definitely take a before I'm and after pick skin. um can I have one can I give you one more um life in Paris update yes I've been I've been fighting with my washing machine so this is one thing that's like always hard cross-culturally and even though I speak French one of the pieces of vocabulary that I didn't learn in French is how to operate a washing machine also a lot of it is not words but like graphics that don't make any sense to me so I've tried like three different times pushing different sets of buttons and I have not been able to get it to both wash my clothes use the soap and whatever it does after washing it's like kind of drying in the same it spins it. and now it's just locked my clothes in there and won't <laughs> let me get them out that's the current status of my fight with my washing machine so wow. you're you're gonna you're you're gonna be really confused mm. when you're walking around the streets of paris because you won't know if people are staring at you because of your haircut or because you're naked <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. just no clothes on whatsoever I, although i guess in paris maybe that's kind of okay yeah. right they're pretty they're pretty loose about that stuff yeah uh, they're okay with topless. I don't know about bottomless. Do people oh, really walk around in topless? Okay. No, but at beaches, they, they, I, I actually haven't been to a beach in France in a long time, but last I went, yeah, they can. I don't know. Like, I don't think it's super common, but it's not that uncommon. Mm-hmm. When I was like 11, my mom would send me to France in the summers, and she would make my like aunt and family make me go topless at beaches and of course I didn't have breasts at the time so like that's totally reasonable and she didn't like how like prudish Americans were and she didn't want me to grow up that way but it's so hard for like an 11 year old basically American kid to go topless at beaches oh man yeah that sounds like a nightmare 
I know where she was coming from, though. I can, I get it. That like, and when we moved to the U.S., I was like five years old, and we went to the pool, and the lifeguard told her I have to, like, she had to put a top on me, mm-hmm. and she was like, she's five years old, she doesn't have breasts, you can't even tell if she's a girl. Like the lifeguard had to ask her, like, is that a girl or a boy? And then when she's a girl, he was like, you have to put a top on her. Yeah, that's funny. Americans oh, are wow. a little. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's good because like, um, have I told you the story about when um, I was at uh, CISP actually, um, mm-hmm. and uh, my. Grad, grad school buddy and roommate at CISP um, got pretty drunk at CISP and told me that she feels like all Americans have been like, yeah, uh, socialized to be prudes because they like can't change in front of their friends. Yeah. Um, and then now I feel like really awkward whenever I'm in a room with her because I feel like <laughs> I have to get naked in front of her to prove that I'm not a prude. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, should we read our letter? Sure. Are we... Yeah, let's let's hear our letter. Okay. Dear the Black Goat, I'm reviewing the literature to plan a new experiment. However, every time I read a paper that was published before the open science movement or reviews based on this kind of paper, I can't avoid doubting the strength or even the existence of the effects reported. It is impossible to check every paper in detail, but I need to know which ones are good enough to build upon. I would love to know your view on this issue and how you usually distinguish good from dubious antecedents. Thanks in advance, Anonymous. Um, Yeah, I think this is a great letter because this is something that I've wondered a lot about too whenever I'm planning new experiments. And I also wonder about how to um, advise my graduate students when they're planning their new studies. Um, Because often I think, especially like when grad students are coming in at the very beginning, um, they have different intuitions than I do about the sort of strength of the existing literature. So they'll come in and they'll like read a paper from whatever, you know, 2000 or something like that. And they'll say like, oh, well, this paper shows this, obviously. So I'm going to do a paper that like builds on this effect. And my intuition is like, well, just because that paper from 2000 showed this effect does not mean anything. Um, So yeah, um, I'm not sure what the answer to this is um, there's an optimistic version, I think, which is that, you know, if we sort of have a healthy amount of skepticism about um, papers that were published before um, the open science movement, then that leaves a lot of effects that are still sort of uncertain. Um, So like a lot of previously gone fruit is now low hanging fruit, I guess. but I'm not sure how you guys approach this kind of thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, there, there's, so there's kind of a there's, a, there's a technical side to this, which is like, are there things you can look for in previous right. studies that should, you know, that, that should influence your evaluation, like sample size or, you know, are the p-values hovering in the magic just below a five zone or things like that. Um, but I also feel like there's, and and I think we've talked about that before on the podcast. Certainly, we can you know we can talk some more. I think there's there's a lot of good stuff. And Samin, I know you deal with a lot of this as an editor. Um, but there's also kind of a like, and th- this is something that I think in psychology, I often feel like we're not super analytical about how things actually, or not, we're not as analytical as we think we are, or as we could be about how things relate to each other. So, you know, sometimes, and I, I, you know, I've seen this happen with, um, you know, when, when big high profile, like failures, quote unquote, failures to replicate come out and people will say, you know, oh, but we know that point anyway, because like we know the, the, a certain theoretical conclusion anyway, because of studies X, Y, and Z. And it's sort of like, well, I mean, if that's true and sometimes it is, then like those studies didn't really depend on this one. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it must, it must not have been actually like from a logical perspective, like the results of this study must not have been all that useful if like this, it, or, or at least if, if you're right, that, that you're making this claim that this, you know, whatever theoretical conclusion still holds up, then like, I guess the study didn't actually matter. And so, you know, so one, one thing I think to, to ask, and of course that's often contentious because sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not, but anyway, so I think one question to ask yourself as you're reviewing the literature is like, how how much of what I'm planning to do would actually be, you know, undermined if, let's say, this study didn't exist? Would that change things? Like, nobody had done this study before, so we didn't know one way or the other. 
or if the results of the study, if the study did exist, but the results had come out different in various ways, opposite or null or other things. And I think sometimes just thinking that through can tell you like, oh, actually, you know, like this study was yeah. sort of because people there's like what I think of as thematic citations. People will cite something for sort of some broad thematic point. Sometimes they're really sort of broad truisms and people just kind of have these throwaway citations and you don't actually need them. Um, but then and then the flip side of that is sometimes there's findings that we really specifically need the finding to be the to be reliable to be replicable for it to be worth doing our thing and and mm -hmm. so like an example of that would be moderators um because very often most of the time when you're looking for like doing an ex a or an extension of a previous study where you're trying to show that something moderates it you're either turning down the effect or reversing it um you're not turning it up because usually it's the first study that shows the effect in the first place mm -hmm. and it's not likely that you're going to come along and find some other condition that's going to make it even bigger because like those people would have been the, the people that were trying to establish the effect in the first place were trying to make it as big as possible. Yeah. And so, so you need the effect as you've read it in the literature to be, you know, a, of a good size and about what it said it is so that your moderator can reverse it or, or attenuate it or do whatever else it is you're doing. Um, and in those cases, I would say like, you, you know, that's a case where you should think about actually running a replication yourself or building a replicate and extend into your study and doing it in such a way that if the replicate part doesn't work, you still get something out of it, like yeah. doing a registered report or something like yeah. that. That's like that's exactly the approach that I've uh, tried to take in those kinds of situations, because um, so I, with one of my students, um, I was in this kind of situation where. Yeah, uh, she was interested in studying a moderator of an existing effect. Um, and basically my argument was, yeah, you can you can investigate this moderator. That's an interesting question. Um, but approach it in a way where you're also testing the original effect. And you'll be able to say something interesting whether or not you find the original effect. Um, so, like, I think a registered report is a really good way to do that. Um, but I think that's often not too difficult to build into your study is like yeah even if you are interested in um in testing an effect that you're not sure about or you're you're interested in testing some kind of like extension of that effect often it's fairly straightforward from a design perspective to um include the original effect as well as a moderator yeah, I think you guys have basically said everything I would say. Like, I think if it's easy to rerun it, that's the safest thing. So yeah, kind of what you're saying, like include the original effect too. If like your study is a way more complicated version, then maybe just start with a direct replication before doing the complicated extension. The other thing is like the the right the letter says you know you can't read reread every paper, check every paper in detail. But I would say, like, you don't necessarily need to check it in a ton of detail to get a sense of whether it's something you feel comfortable building on. Like, I think we don't give enough weight sometimes to our intuitions, partly because if we had believed the literature or when we did believe almost everything in the literature, we learned that our intuitions aren't trustworthy because I would never have predicted a lot of the things that are in the literature. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the lessons of some of the failed replications is that maybe actually we should not be completely ignoring our intuitions. I mean, of course, we need to be open to changing them but if you read something and you're like that sounds super implausible plus it's like a small sample and a high p-value or whatever i think you know you don't i think i would trust that intuition and use that to like be like okay i'm going to start with the replication or i'm not going to go in that direction at all or something like that so i would say like don't completely disregard your intuition about whether something is worth building on or solid or that kind of thing but don't you think like so i would say that now because I mean I guess like we would we always sort of think that our intuition is at its best at the current moment mm -hmm. but I think my intuition two years ago or four years ago would have been pretty bad I don't think that it's I don't know I can't speak for you but I I feel like we never completely lost our intuitions we just stopped trusting them because oh. we so trusted the like evidence so much like something like that like yeah if you hadn't yeah. been kind of like played by a lot of practices that you thought were fine. I mean, I don't mean by other people. I mean, like, ourselves, too, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, yeah, but I kind of feel like, yeah, 
for me, it like taught me to not to like, I mean, kind of an Bayesian way to give like to have completely flat priors and like give no weight at all to what seems plausible in the beginning. And I'm not saying we should use such strong priors that the data can't speak at all, but I think we should maybe go back to giving some weight to our intuitions. But that is a risky thing. But I don't mean just intuitions, but intuitions plus signs of flexibility or low power or other things like that. What do you? The guys, other thing is, oh, I was just gonna say one more thing is that if it's if what you're building on it wasn't the key effect in a lot of the papers, then I would be more sure about it. Like I'm confident about what self other agreement on the Big Five should be for, and I'm not too worried about meta analyses on that or past literature on that. But that's because it's usually publication bias isn't operating on that result. Mm-hmm. So what do you guys think of the, I mean, we've been talking about cases where there's a finding and it would, you know, like you might, you might normally or naturally assume it's true and, and, but you're worried it might not be. But what, what about the, I don't know if this is the reverse of that, but like cases where there's some finding in the literature that maybe you don't believe and you're concerned that people aren't going to take your work seriously because it contradicts that, you know, experiment with an N of 17 or, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, because oftentimes mm-hmm. where, you know, it's, it's like, oh, your hypothesis can't be true because so-and-so already showed this thing. Or maybe it's more subtle than that. I think it usually is. It's like mm-hmm. your interpretation has to account think- for this shitty finding um and and often editors as well as reviewers demand we say like you have to account for this other paper in your interpretation and you might not want to that's why i think this is an area where i think which journal you submit to really really matters so i think that um if you're trying to submit a paper that's a direct replication or null result or very unpopular or things like that then i think the less traditional the journal's values and policies and editors the better for you because I do think yeah the like traditional way of handling those papers is to say either you're wrong or we don't pub- you might be right but we don't publish that kind of stuff here and I think this what you're describing kind of falls into the same category we don't often think of it that way because it's not a null result or whatever but it's a kind of thing that's unpopular and often gets dismissed or like yeah people question your expertise or things like that but I think the journals that value these newer practices and recognize the importance of not gatekeeping things out that are that we just don't like to see or whatever i think we'll also be more open to that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah i think that's true well have we uh we don't have our non-verbals yeah, usually right. i'm able to look <laughs> at you guys when it's time to wrap up the letter has I, do, do I, either of you have anything else to add <laughs> about the letter i feel like I, we've done that done that one a pretty yeah. good deal yeah i think so too yep Okay, cool. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, thank you to Anonymous for your letter. And if you're listening and you have a letter, a conundrum, something you want us to read on a future episode and and talk about, uh, um, you can email us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can tweet at us. We're on Twitter at BlackGoatPod. We've got a Facebook page, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. And now, brand new, exciting, we have an Instagram account, uh, which is BlackGoatPod, whatever. Is it at BlackGoat? Do, do they use the at sign on Instagram, too? I can't remember. Anyway. Um, yeah. And Oh, and speaking of which, um, we on our last episode, we read a, a letter, and it was from a clinical psychology graduate student, and... We asked for um, some some. We we did our best to answer, but we we also asked for some input from uh, clinical psychology folks, um, and we got a couple of good responses on Twitter. Um, Catherine Gordon and uh, Kevin King both responded, um, and also uh, Catherine Gordon does a podcast called The Jedi Council, which we'll link in our notes. And she said they might talk about that issue in an upcoming episode of their podcast. So. Um, uh, so it was really, it was really nice. We had some good Twitter discussion. I'll see if I can dig up the Twitter threads about our last episode to to where um, where some some clinical folks were talking about that. But that's always really cool to to get people um, uh, coming in where they have expertise that we don't, or just a different perspective from us, uh, which which uh, we always love when that happens. So thank you. Cool. Um, so for our our main topic today, we wanted to talk about situationism 
and this sort of uh, <laughs> started. Uh, you you guys may may regret doing this because I, I sort of said in as, a, as an aside in the last episode that I have a rant in me about situationism. <laughs> a, after we were over with, you guys were like, "Why don't we do an episode about situationism?" And uh, um, and so that's just going to encourage me to to rant more in the future. But uh, and we don't have the nonverbals to communicate to you that you're ranting. Right, right. That's no, just going to yeah. give me an excuse <laughs> to just interrupt him at yeah, all right. at any time. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's like, not oh, like I thought I you were done, anyway. Sanjay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not paying attention to the nonverbals anyway. When I rant, it's like yeah. everything turns red. But, um, but no, I, I mean, I don't actually have a rant teed up exactly, but. Uh, I think, I mean, I think we, you know, well, we're social and personality psychologists, so it's relevant to us, but it also, it comes up a lot across different areas of psychology. I mean, I've certainly encountered situationist ideas influencing clinical and developmental and other things. It's really important in philosophy and sort of the, the virtue ethics and moral philosophy mm-hmm. kind of world. Um, and so... Uh, and it's relevant for, yeah, so like, some aspects of situationism are, like, the idea that really subtle contextual cues could shift people's answers to questionnaires. And so if you measure anything with a questionnaire, it matters whether situation, the like very strong version of situationism is true or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, let me, I mean, maybe as a starting point, um, should we define I, it? I tried I to, ma- okay. Yeah. yeah so I, I tried to, quote, I tried to make a Sanjay list. Has one too. Uh, yeah, so I tried to make a list of going through. This is what I was going. Guys. <laughs> We're gonna keep interrupting. You. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so let me read my quote now. Okay, all right, Alexa, why don't you read a quote? And then I have a list I'm gonna read, but yeah, go for it. Okay, so I mean, this is from the the Ross and Nisbet book, and um, the quote is okay. So when trying to get people to change familiar ways of doing things, social pressures and constraints exerted by the informal peer group represent the most potent restraining forces that must be overcome, and at the same time, the most powerful inducing force that can be exploited to achieve success. So I think, I mean. I think there are some aspects of this that are generous to situationism because the focus is here on social pressure. Um, I think also they would add to a definition that we underestimate the power of the social forces. So not only are they very powerful, um, but it's particularly important to study them because we underestimate their influence. Yeah, that's true. Um, But it's not just social forces. So yeah, go, yeah, go ahead and add to that. Yeah, so, so, so I, well, I, I made a, in the chapter they focus on social forces. But the I was totally, totally going to set this up. Okay, <laughs> good. So yeah, so I mean, I so so I looked at Nisbet and Ross. I looked at there's a blog called The Situationist. Uh, um, it's less active now, but it used to be. And I, I've kind of looked around at sort of what are. I've tried to write down, and sometimes it's it's sort of implicit in what people are saying. Sometimes it's explicit, but it it is kind of interesting that there there's actually quite a few things that people are sort of theoretical. So one one question is just is situationism a sort of in a scientific sense a theory or a theoretical framework? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think there are elements of what people mean when they talk about situationism that are more kind of an agenda, like what you should be studying. Um, but in terms of sort of like scientific pro- things that you might recognize as scientific propositions, right? So there's a bunch of things that, so let me just sort of read through things that I've seen when people talk about situationism or quote unquote, the power of the situation, right? So one is just situations matter. And I think that's a really kind of trivial one. Um, but it's that, you know, we can reject the null of, of no situational effect. Um, one is situations have strong effects. And that raises the question of what does strong mean, which we can yeah. get into. Um, one version is situation effects are stronger than person effects, personal mm-hmm. dispositions or personality. So that's another one. Um, situations are stronger than we expect them to be. So that's a mm-hmm. comparison of a situational effect to some kind of an expectation. Um, Nisbet and Ross talk about another one that, that Nisbet and Ross talk about in their book. They're kind of citing Lewin is this idea of what what Lewin called channel factors, mm-hmm. which is ways that small or subtle situational uh, um, differences can have large effects. Um, so sort of, and, and that needs a lot of unpacking. Um, another one which Phil Zimbardo has talked about is the idea of a strong situation, that there are some, some situations um, that eliminate or compress the effects of individual differences that might otherwise be there. So that's kind of like an interaction or a, a sort of nonlinear effect. 
Um, another thing that, that I've heard people talk about sort of informally, I had a, a conversation with a NIH program officer about this once, um, was, you know, saying, well, I think we should be studying situations because situations are things that you can intervene on. You can't intervene on persons or personality, but you can intervene on situations. And since we're in the business of making people's lives better, we should be studying situations. So, so situations, mm -hmm. it's, that's sort of the agenda idea, but it's also sort of a theoretical proposition that situations are intervenable and person factors are not. Um, and then the, the Situationist blog uh, is kind of interesting because it has a bunch of social psychologists who've written for it, who've been contributors, um, who are on its, uh, I think, advisory board. When they define, and the blog was created by, I think, a, a, like a legal studies group, um, and they bring in some stuff that I, it was unfamiliar to me as situationism taught. It's more about sort of like opposing the economic, like rational actor model that people are not always rational, which I think is not classic situationism, but it intersects because of situation, that sort of situation being stronger than you expect idea. And the idea that sort of situationism is tied to these sort of attributional and judgment biases that cause people to you know, so it's the it's more on the expect side that people kind of systematically underestimate si situational effects. So that that's my laundry list of like things that I've sort of seen people talk about, and it's a it's a pretty uh, obviously long list. Um, and and there are sort of I think a lot of them need to be unpacked, and and there's evidence that speaks to some, and and there's debates associated with some, and some of them are quite different. So maybe we could choose one to, f I mean, so my preference would be to focus on the idea that situations have a more powerful influence than we expect, um, which yeah, I, think I think is, that's, that's a good one to, to start off and maybe we can go through a couple of them, but that's, yeah, I think that's a really important one to talk about. Okay. Um, so Simeon, what's your problem with situationism? <laughs> <laughs> well, one interesting thing about that is like, first, like, how often do we actually measure what people expect, but also yeah. that magnitude really matters if that's the claim. If the claim is that it's a big effect and we wouldn't expect a really big effect, but like so much of experimental social psychology is about just whether or not there's an effect and they often compare themselves to personality psychology and say, well, we don't care about effect sizes because we're mm -hmm. doing experiments in the lab and so on. Well, but so that it raises both the issue of effect size, which is often overlooked, and the issue of ecological validity, because just because you can move p things around a lot in the lab doesn't mean those forces are having big effects in everyday life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, okay, so maybe I'll sort of like set up, I, I guess, like, and this goes to the, I think, the agenda idea, and maybe this idea that like some of these, um, research trajectories stem from like politically motivated positions um but set up like a few scenarios where i think like the situationism idea seems relevant so one one thing that i think situationism is trying to claim is that um our our intuitions could be misleading us when we're ascribing blame to people um so for instance like if you were to conclude that because somebody committed a crime that they're a bad person or like um, if you were to conclude that like a grad student who is p-hacking um, must be a bad person or must not care about the value of their science or um, maybe like taking a like an inverse kind of example so a really positive example so maybe like if somebody who gets a degree from harvard that suggests that they're like a good hard-working person and I think that's where this idea of like expectation um, becomes important because if the situationist idea, at least in these situations, is correct in that people on average tend to um, attribute these things to people when in fact the situation might play an important role in these outcomes, um, then that's problematic, right? Because then we're uh, blaming people for negative outcomes when actually their circumstances played a big role or were praising people for positive outcomes um, when actually maybe they are in that situation because of, um, you know, like their family or their wealth or things like that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. There are so many different levels that we could talk about this. and But, but that's, I think, where the idea has its But I feel like that's so... Like, of course, people sometimes make overly dispositional attributions when they shouldn't, but I feel like that's 
a very gimmicky thing to be like, well, because people sometimes do this, look, let's show you. Because you could, I could equally easily pump your intuition that we don't make dispositional attributions enough. So like, think of all the people who've given their partner or their employer or their shithole friend a fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh chance after they've mistreated them a bunch of times. Like, it's not hard to make draw, tell a story where people get... Uh-huh. Right. Where you convince people that the default is to give people too many chances and not make dispositional attributions enough. Both happen, right? And the, the reason it's easy to pump that intuition in both directions is that both happen right, quite right, a right. bit. So I still think there's a burden of proof to show that it's very it's more common to make dispositional attributions to overly attribute things to dispositions rather than we, we can go wrong in both directions. Yeah, that's fair, I think. But I still think that um, the idea that we should spend time doing research that tries to correct those errors um, is but, true. Like, but just so, showing so that either way, the error doesn't help correct it because we don't know when in real life we're erring too much on one side or the other, and doing lab experiments isn't necessarily going to help us with that. Like, okay, so now I know that if I watch somebody be randomly assigned to writing the quiz questions or trying to answer someone else's quiz questions, I shouldn't make dispositional attributions about intelligence to the person who can't answer the quiz questions. That's not particularly useful to me. What about when my roommate leaves things not put away for the sixth time? At what point should I be like, okay, well, this person's never going to be neat and tidy. I shouldn't live with them. Like, I'm not sure that showing that, that an error can happen in the lab under contrived conditions really tells us much about whether we, in our everyday life, err too much in the direction of making dispositional versus situational attributions. I so guess I'm I, not... I want to jump in with... Uh, just something that I think, uh, um, and I'll try to remember to link this in, in the notes that, um, you know, the, this idea of sort of expectations and judgment errors coming in, you know, a lot of it rests on a set of findings. The fundamental attribution error is probably the most famous one that were sort of talked about, you know, a few decades ago. And there, there's an interesting meta-analysis that Bertram Molle did of the actor-observer asymmetry. Um, Mm-hmm. which he published about maybe 12 years ago or so. And uh, along the and basically, so the actor-observer, the sort of classic version of the actor-observer asymmetry is that people uh, um, overweight situational factors when explaining their own behavior, but they over, overweight yeah. uh, dispositional when explaining others. And Molly found in this meta-analysis that uh, that's just not the case. Um, but along the way, he also looked at the fundamental attribution error, and there's a couple different definitions of what the fundamental attribution error is, but for one of the common ones, which is just that people in general overweight dispositions, he also, in this meta-analysis, found no evidence for that. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny, because I've looked in textbooks, and people will, like the textbooks will talk about the classic actor-observer and fundamental attribution error, and then they'll cite Molle as like for some moderator analysis but not for the like the main effect that on average it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. so that's one thing that i think the the field is i think there's something going on in in psychology and in academia more generally that sort of situation versus and we can we might want to talk about some of the political and historical background for some of these things um so that's part of it but but then also just to sort of uh, um kind of finish up on on this that in Bertram's other work on attributions, he collects, rather than giving people rating scales where you say how much did dispositions matter, how much did situations matter, he just asks people open-endedly to explain behavior. And dispositions, and he's reported this in a number of papers, that people, when you just ask someone why did someone do something, dispositional inferences are extremely low base rate. Um, and situational ones are, actually are too. And what he finds is that things like intentionality judgments are really a big part of how actual real people form explanations of behavior mm-hmm. and that they're not really this and this situation versus person distinction is not really the like the real world structure of people's thinking and so this idea that people overweight dispositions do they or don't they overweight dispositions is almost like the wrong question because that's not the dimension that they're thinking is even organized around. That's something that psychologists care about for a lot of historical reasons. I don't know. Like, so what's the mean set? I mean, like, I'm fine with like conceding that that we can't talk about like a general 
um, tendency to favor situationism versus dispositionism. But like, I think the fact that uh, like Samin and I can like easily come up with examples where it feels like people make bad mistakes when they're trying to understand other people's behavior in either direction. Yeah. That seems like but a thing a, that psychologists should spend time there's on. There's a third um, option, which I think is what Bertrand Mollet talks about, but I might be getting it wrong, but, and it connects to the political issues. So there's this idea floating around, and I think a lot of more senior social psychologists' heads, I don't know if it's still around in more junior social psychologists' heads, but that to, to choose to study dispositional influences on behavior, you must be conservative or at least not as liberal as us because the compassionate explanation right. for bad behavior or like failures or things like that is a situational explanation. But I think that what both of right. them have in common is that they're actually not um, attributions to intention or choice. And in a way, like, I agree, and actually, yes. so I had a conversation with a very, very eminent old senior person who's a situationist. And she was saying, like, I just don't understand why anyone would study personality because it has no policy implications, blah, blah. I had another conversation with also a senior eminent situationist who said that he thought, he believed, he was pretty convinced that personality psychologists on average are on average much more conservative than social psychologists, which I don't know if that's true, but I was surprised he was so sure about that. But really, I made the argument to both of them that you could personality explanations can be used to increase compassion just as much as yeah i agree situational explanations so if, like if i say that this person you know struggled a lot in school because they just have like a short attention span it's hard for them to concentrate for that long or whatever mm-hmm. i might have just as much compassion for for that as for situational explanations the the attribution that's the most like moral heavy with moral responsibility is the one to something like free will or choice or intention. Yeah, yeah. And I also said to the person who said that, like, I don't know why anyone would study personality because it doesn't have policy implications. I said, well, don't you think it has policy implications for how we should tailor interventions so that they're more effective for the target group? And she was like, oh, I never thought of that. And I was like, what? You're like 70 years old. You've been working in this area for ages. (laughs) You've been working on policy implications of social psychology for ages, and you haven't thought of the fact that the role of personality could actually help you boost the impact of your interventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the history, and I, I, it's, I, I had wanted to, so I'm going from a long ago memory, but I, I remember that, because I'm away from all my books, but David Winter, I think, has a chapter in the Handbook of Personality from some time ago, sort of tracing the history of some of these ideas. And, and so I don't remember how much of this is in, in Winter's chapter, chapter, but I think at least some of it is that, you know, there was, uh, this is like the, we're still sort of, this is still like fallout and reverberations from the kind of intellectual zeitgeist in the 1960s and 70s, which itself was fallout from World War II and sort of discoveries after World War II. And there was a very strong anti-essentialism zeitgeist in academia that cut across quite a quite a number of fields and so you you see and and it's i say zeitgeist because i don't think that there was always like explicit like people citing work and making connections although there was there was more of that i think than than people might realize but you know so you think of things going on in the humanities around postmodernism and social constructivism and then you know within academic psychology anti-essentialism took the form of, you know, identifying, you know, causes, you know, theorized causes located in the person, like personality, but also like intelligence and and other things, as just sort of fundamentally problematic, and, you know, trying to engage in a sort of conceptual critique of that, not just an empirical, well, like, is, you know, how much do these things matter relative to one another, but but conceptually saying that, you know, there were problems with even in engaging in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see you see these articles from the 1970s about, you know, personality psychology where there, there's one that's like, I, th- I remember it's like a, a Richard Schwader article on like the semantic distortion hypothesis, which was some old attempt to sort of undermine some, some personality work where like the word personality is in scare quotes every time. And it must appear like hundreds of times in this article. And it's like, he can't bring himself to just write the word personality without putting it in scare quotes every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there was this kind of like, and so that's where I think some of the political connections come from that sort of, you know, personality was kind of lumped in with these sort of essentialist views that were kind of like, 
you know, used to justify, and some of them really were, you know, there, there were things that were sort of essentialist ideas that were mm-hmm. used to justify social inequalities and things like that. Right. But then, then, then it's just kind of gotten lumped in with that. And so there was this, I think, kind of agenda in the field of trying to sort of critique that in a way that was good, but also undermine it and delegitimize doing research in those areas. And, and a lot of situationism, I think, kind of has this, like, these reverberations that younger scholars may not even know about or, or have explicitly made, but the kind of sort of more overt political uh, connections that the people Samin's talking about make, they, they, have, they have a history in the 60s and 70s. And that, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of social psychologists mm-hmm. right. who don't themselves hold these views think that personality psychologists are so touchy about this and like why are they being so touchy and I don't know if you've had this experience Sanjay but I've had the experience that at least half a dozen departments where I've gone and given my brown bag talk and I've gotten reactions varying from like very positive like friendly like oh we didn't know people actually did research on personality like basically we thought it died a few decades ago um and often grad students telling me that like they were never taught that there is such a thing as personality research or trait research um and then like one department at dinner when you know they took me out to dinner and the faculty one of the faculty were like yeah like why do we call ourselves a social area why don't we call ourselves social slash personality and an older faculty member was like well i'm sorry but i'm not changing our name to something i don't even think exists yeah and this was in front of me at dinner (laughs) like you know there's such like heated uh opinions about this that we're subjected to with no like sense that it's disrespectful or anything like that. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's I've interesting. Had a I hear those experiences too. Yeah, even people who are like totally removed from psychology, it's not that infrequent that I hear people say that they like don't think like. So I find myself far more often than not defending personality rather than the other way around. Um, I'm like people who I know who are not psychologists are often very interested in personality and are interested in like um, evaluating their own personalities and stuff. But it's not that uncommon for people to have this like weird to me intuition that like um, their personality is like infinitely changeable or something like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, And they, I think, maybe part of it comes from their like frustration when they're answering personality questionnaires that they're like but sometimes I'm extroverted and sometimes I'm introverted how can I answer this question you know (laughs) and to be Um, balanced there's also like overly strong reactions on the personality side of course like I remember one time I was I think on the program committee for a personality conference and I suggested that we have like one of the invited speakers be a social psychologist who'd recently like put out an olive branch saying like that they realized that there were like meaningful individual differences in their data and things like that. And when I suggested this, like the more senior personality people were like, no, we're not giving them a spot at our conference. This is like our chance to promote our own blah, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like there's a lot of defensiveness there. Yeah. There's a really good paper on this. If anyone's interested, um, Rich Lucas and Brent Donnellan wrote an intro to a special issue on the person situation debate. Oh yeah. And their intro is called something like if the person situation debate is over, why does it still generate yeah. so much negative affect? Yeah. That's quite good. Yeah. So um, do you guys remember why you became personality psychologists? Because it was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like, did you, I mean, I did, I definitely didn't like, I wasn't like, oh, there's personality psychology and there's social psychology and there's other kinds of psychology Mm -hmm. and I'm going to choose Did you take a personality class? No. Yeah, that's why you didn't think that. So do you want the dispositional attribution or the situational attribution for why I became a personality (laughs) psychologist? Because I have both. Obviously, I want the situational (laughs) attribution. The situational one is because I took a personality class and we used David Funder's textbook, which is excellent. I really, really liked it. Um, I think it it played a huge role. The dispositional attribution, and I definitely don't believe this, like this is partly tongue in cheek, but it might be true, Mm -hmm. is that I do really like judging people. (laughs) And I feel like, (laughs) why isn't everybody making dispositional attribution? So like, I know that I am one of those people who goes too far in that direction, but I also know lots of people who are way too reluctant to make dispositional attributions. And like, you warn them that, look, based on what happened last time, this is what's going to happen next time. And then it happens and they're like, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they make another situational attribution. Then they do it again. They go back in the same situation with the same person and the same thing happens and I've always found that fascinating of like I mean this is also related to another topic about situationism that we should talk about is like the obvious 
features of situations that like are kind of hit you over the head and of course they constrain you and of course they matter versus the subtle features of situations but like we live in, in among many very powerful situational forces so if i think about like all my colleagues in my department we all have the same chair and dean and so on we all work in the same physical building in the same town geographic location culture mm-hmm. etc there's so many ways in which we're in the same situation obviously there's ways in which we're in different situations too but despite those very strong situational constraints, we actually react to that situation quite differently from each other. And that's always mm-hmm. fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I went into, I mean, I, I was first pulled into personality psychology by work on personality development. Um, so I, I was exposed to that in some classes as an undergrad. I worked in Dan McAdams' lab at, at Northwestern, um, and he's very interested in personality development, also doesn't really emphasize personality traits he emphasizes things like narratives and identity mm-hmm. and so later on and so I was and I was pretty unaware of a lot of the controversies like they were covered in class but I didn't really sort of realize how like still present and heated they were and so it was just bizarre to me later on when I would hear people saying as critique things of personality psychology that I that were just contrary to all the exposure I had had to, to it and the way I had learned it so, so this idea for example that you know, people saying, I mean, I mentioned this program officer um, who once told me, look, I'm not interested in funding personality research because I'm interested in things that can change. And I'm like, I study personality change. Like it, it's it's in the, you know, it's like of the two words of like this area that I study, it's one of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and like I had another experience where I was at a a talk being given by a sort of very well-known senior relationships researcher. Um who uh, um, was trying to like look at factors that predict whether couples will break up. And there was this like glaringly obvious uh, finding again and again in his slides that like trait negative affect is a pretty yeah. large risk factor for, for couples breaking up. And someone asked, it wasn't me, someone else asked him in the audience, like, you know, why are you not looking at this? He's like, well, I'm interested in studying things that I can change. It's like, okay, dude, you're a clinical psychologist. Like your job is to change <laughs> stable patterns of negative affect. Like, why don't you think that that's something you could intervene on? Um, and and it's just this kind of, you know, and, and on the other side of things, like, there are situational factors that are incredibly hard in a practical sense to intervene on. You look at, yeah. you know, socioeconomic status and social right. and other sources of social inequality and, and race affecting the way that people are treated by others in, in sort of prejudiced and racist ways. And like those are in the environment. And some people have been trying really damn hard for a long time to, to change them. And they're, they're really hard as a practical matter to change. Um, and and so so I this this sort of like kind of really easy glib like person can't be changed environment can just doesn't really I mean there's the additional stuff Samin mentioned of like if you understand person factors you might understand the limits of things or you might understand how to tailor things but there's also just like you know it's just not true um, and and it creates blind spots like this talk I was at where this person literally wasn't looking at I mean it was in their data and they were able they had obviously like thought about it because they were able they weren't like oh I never noticed that in my correlation table but um they just like were choosing not to look at this thing and they they were saying my my goal is to like try to you know um try to understand relationships and keep healthy relationships together or make them better or whatever and it's like dude like your data is screaming at you why aren't you listening Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I think I think going back to what Samin said earlier about the the idea that you can be sort of like just as compassionate from either perspective, um, I do think that that it's like a common assumption to make that when we attribute something to pe- somebody's personality, there's some attribution of controllability or something like that. That like because we're attributing this to like who you are then like you, you are at fault or something like that. And I, I definitely think that that is, um, that like doesn't follow from that attribution. And I also think that's a really harmful way to think about personality. And vice versa, like Sanjay said, even yeah. if I should attribute it to the situation, that doesn't mean it's changeable. So like if if I if someone like yeah, sure. slighted me in some way or did something harmful to me and you tell me, oh, no, 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 don't worry. It's just because they grew up in this environment or whatever. And so they have this bias against people like you. 
that doesn't mean I should keep exposing myself to them because they're probably going to keep being biased against me, even though it was an mm-hmm. environmental thing that, that made them that way. So, so yeah, yeah, like whether it's the situation or the disposition doesn't necessarily tell you whether you should give them another chance or not, right? Yeah. Because one yeah, might be yeah, changeable yeah, and the other might not, and sometimes it's the other way around. And... Mm-hmm. I want to I want to go back to something because we've been talking a lot about the sort of like the the expectations and attributional side of things, and I, I want to kind of connect that to another point that or another issue that's not just about that, which which is you know so I mentioned Bertram Molly's work showing that if you just read and code how people explain events, how, how people explain other people's behavior, sorry, um, that it's really hard to say that dispositional versus situational is like the organizing factor um and i think that there is also when we step away from attributions or we step away from this question of expectations and we're just as scientists trying to study behavior i think there's also a risk that we for a variety of reasons have imposed this you can study it from a situations perspective or a dispositions perspective and that's a very old theme in psychology kronbach gave a famous speech about it sort of the two streams idea of kind of differential and experimental work and that sort of thing. Um, but I think there's a real risk that we impose that thinking on how we generate ideas and how we understand data that we, we miss on other ways of organizing our thinking. So, so to even ask, is it situation or is it person or, or how much does this matter? How much does that matter? Even if in, in an additive way or whatever, we're kind of, um, we're already like putting our blinders on by viewing it that way. I guess, so, I mean, maybe this is just reinforcing exactly what you're saying, Sanjay. But when I hear like uh, intentions as like a third category, my my sort of like gut reaction is, yeah, well, you could also think about intentions as just like a mediator. And then does the intention come from like who the person is or from, from the situation? Like, like that, that is not a clear third category to me. Yeah, well, so, I mean, in, in Bertram's framework, he talks about a difference between whether people explain things with intentions or what he gives, what he calls causal history of reasons, which is, and so in some sense, the difference between, like, Alexa did this because she meant to, or Alexa did this because of something that's in the causal history, and that could be a situation or a disposition. You lump those together, that's the distinction that for him matters in the attributional or that that carries a lot of weight. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, I agree. I just see, I guess I see that as like a separate dimension that's independent of, it's not like a third category. Yeah, but, but I think also like, I mean, so the, um, the, the sort of person, I mean, an example of this, which I I found really enlightening was, was David Funder was giving a talk once and, and he talked about this, uh, um, uh, sort of discussion he had read of kind of reconceptualizing the the Milgram experiment, and it, it really had a big impact on me because it was, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of the classic way that we talk about Milgram is that it's like the you know the power of the situation, and you know he was saying like, and again the, David was was reflecting uh, another sort of analysis that that so this wasn't his original idea, but he was kind of he said this in a really compelling way that. You know, you can think about the Milgram experiment and it's like, it's not, you can say it's, you know, the the sort of situation factor of the person saying obey versus a person factor that's getting overridden of wanting to be altruistic or, or pro-social mm-hmm. or help the other person. But you're saying you could also frame it as like, there's a, a situation factor of like the guy in the next room pounding on the wall saying, please stop shocking me. And you have to have a disposition factor of like, you know, um, of actually like choosing to obey authority or press the buttons or whatever. And, and that the, you know, the real kind of I think the fuller way of thinking about it is it's multiple situation factors. So you have this guy standing next to you saying the experiment mm-hmm. requires you continue. You have the person in the next room saying, please stop. You have in the person a disposition to respond to authority cues and you have a disposition to respond to distress and request for help cues and that what's really going on is that you have a bunch of interactions that are that are at play you have this these two different dispositions or maybe Mm -hmm. more than two that are being activated by multiple cues in the environment and that that's really what's actually going on and Mm -hmm. that framing it as person versus situation you, you completely miss on 
the the way that it's it's irreducibly interactive. It, yeah, it, you, right. you can statistically you can manipulate one or the other, but what's the actual underlying causal process is that you have a human being who has these multiple dispositions that are being activated by the different cues and across the different conditions Milgram ran, some of those cues were sometimes stronger than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we we often just miss out on that that like most of in social and personality psychology, most of the things we're talking about are dispositions interacting with things in the environment whether you're talking about a personality psychology study whether you're talking Mm -hmm. about a you know something emphasizing individual differences or whether you're talking about something that manipulates situations you're maybe like averaging over one of those or aggregating over one of those but it's not it's not not there just because you're not including it in your design right yeah like and the idea i mean that you're bringing up from the milgram experiment i mean when we were so reading the section on situationism in the Ross and Nisbet book, there were parts of it that really resonated with me. And then there are parts of it that were like, uh, I sort of cringed and I was like, okay, this is like where social psychology went wrong. Um, and the parts that resonate with me are this, like, I think an idea that's really interesting to me is the idea that like social influences are often maybe more powerful than we would think. And I think that's one of the ways that the Milgram study has been interpreted is, but I, again, you could argue, yeah, either way that like there's the conformity or the uh, authority influence, but there's also the social influence of the other person. Um, so, but then there's also this, like, as you mentioned earlier, Sanjay, this idea of channels. Um, and I think because um, I think people generally have, are maybe pretty good at, like social and personality psychology and and we think about people's behavior and the causes of people's behavior all the time um social psychologists i think then ended up spending so much time trying to examine these factors that were missing these like very subtle aspects of the situation that you know like we don't expect to influence our behavior but actually do um and i think uh yeah i think that we went off the rails a little bit there yeah that's it that's an interesting point. Like, if you if you studied the obvious situational influences, then everyone would say, oh, social psychology is so dumb, it's just telling us things we already know. So there's this, like, pressure to tell people things they don't already know, which pushes us into the more subtle, more counterintuitive. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's, like, that's where I get a little bit frustrated with, with the, that version of situationism, where it's, like, yeah. these things that you would never expect to influence your behavior. It's like, no, but let's talk about the things I would expect to influence my behavior, because those are the ones that probably yeah, right. do most of the time and let's learn about yeah. those too and so I think this is where and this is close to my heart because it affects people's views of self-report it's that a lot of people have like kind of adopted this view that self-reports can be pushed around so easily that we shouldn't even use them mm-hmm. and like you know I've had people ask me like why don't you just use implicit measures instead because look how easy it is to push around self-reports and it's like oh my god this ratio of signal to noise in questionnaire yeah. explicit questionnaire measures versus implicit measures if you're looking at individual differences yes. it's not even a contest like sure you might be able to push self-reports around a little bit with like anchoring effects or or mm-hmm. context framing effects things like that for sure but a lot of other things that we like we think might matter the effects are really small on self-report yeah. explicit measures so I think there's this risk of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we try to yeah. always say that like everything can be pushed around. And also if everything could be pushed around all the time by the lighting and the tone of voice and the blah, 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 and this and that, then nobody would act in any consistent way ever. And we wouldn't be able to study anything about how people act because sure, you could manipulate one factor, but what about the bazillion right. other factors that apparently have hu- like much bigger than you would expect? Mm-hmm. But one thing, I mean, that's fascinating to me is how good of a job social psychology has done of communicating these ideas to the public because I mean maybe or maybe this is just the public is what would have believed these things anyway I don't know but I do come across this idea a lot that like how can we ever talk about anything stable because look how everything is a function of these like subtle and, and unexpected influences there was a episode of um the NPR podcast Invisibilia a couple of years ago that like really played on this intuition very strongly that like, you might think that personality matters but actually it doesn't except in psychopaths um it's like yeah i just thought they did like a really super it was like very much the caricature of situationism um and personality psychology has just done a terrible job of getting their message out there of what 
yeah, what we know, what we what we believe, what the theory is, what the evidence Which is, I've, and so on. There's no lay people who have an accurate understanding. Yeah, of that. and that's always like been so interesting to me because people are so interested in personality. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. that's I, everybody wants to take like BuzzFeed quizzes and stuff like that. Like everybody I know knows what like Harry Potter house they are. Um, my undergraduate students all know what Myers Briggs category they are. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like people are so, so interested in it, but like nobody knows about real well, personality they want types, psychology. I think. That's one of the reasons, but that's a whole nother but conversation. I feel I like it's not that hard to convince someone that they want to know where they are in a continuum yeah. as opposed to a type. Is it? I don't know. I, I agree. Like, I don't know why we're so bad at it. Why we've where we failed so badly at communicating with the public, and I mean, part of it is we're fighting against the situation as an idea, but it's not just that. Somehow we've just really failed at getting a message across. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I want to. I want to go back to this idea of like the the small situational influences, the sort of channel factors idea, because I I think that that's been. So I I think that there's a. I think that's been actually a, a lot of the uh, you can you can look at a lot of the replicability issues in the last decade or so through the lens of that idea I think really having a rough time right so um, you know so there there were there were problems all along with for example a lot of those classic studies had such small samples that you couldn't actually say that it had a large effect <laughs> you know even even if you so so one issue is that often they didn't calculate the effect size right like you go and look at the article they don't say what the effect is two two is that if you if you calculate it for them you, you know such a humongous interval from from some of these classic studies that you couldn't say it's small or large um, it's not clear what when people say like large effects of subtle manipulations. It's not clear what the definition of a subtle or small manipulation is. Um, but but I think also like you then, you, you go and look at, I think there were some research traditions that really tried to run with this. And again, it wasn't exactly a theoretical idea. It was sort of an agenda idea, but like we should be finding so, you know large effects of, of small manipulations. And it's got this really sort of compelling narrative structure to it to, that's almost become a cliche like this one cool trick will change your life is sort of like mm-hmm. th- this was kind of like the the precursor to that that sort of headline cliche um, but you look at things that have had a rough time like a lot of the and I realize people will I'm sure will get emails if I say the words social priming because people contest whether that's a thing but like the social priming studies that have, have sort of showed like you know these priming effects um, and they have the conceptual problems Samin was talking about that if we were so susceptible to these environmental primes like we wouldn't be consistent but also they just empirically like a lot of things that were based generally on the concept of like social priming where social priming is a sort of thematic category of like subtle things in your environment having important effects on consequential behaviors those are some of the things that have had the roughest time in replicability. I think you can also, in that tradition of like large effects of subtle manipulations, you can look at like ego depletion has sometimes had that story to it that like, oh, if you just do the same thing twice, like you'll you'll lose your willpower or whatever. Um, and so yeah, so I think I think there we're kind of in the midst of a sort of a correction to that. Although I don't know how much people are are interpreting the some of the correction is being a correction to this one particular sort of situationist idea maybe that's a good note to end on i don't know if our audience can do one more than an hour on situationism (laughs) well hopefully uh hopefully next time we'll we'll have our our visual skype back and and we'll we'll be back to form but uh um yeah thanks everybody for listening to the black goat and uh Check us out on our new Instagram. Maybe you'll be able to see uh, Samin's new haircut and uh, Alexa's new tattoo by the time. And we, Sanjay's uh, um, new beard trimming setting. Yeah. Don't sell yourself <laughs> short, Sanjay. I, I, will, I will see if I can find any pictures where there's a noticeable difference or not. But uh, yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.